Chapter 7 The same Easter day at Padley was another matter altogether. As early as five o'clock in the morning, the house was astir. Lights glimmered in upper rooms, footsteps passed along corridors and across the court, parties began to arrive. All was done without ostentation, yet without concealment, for Padley was a solitary place, and had no fear at this time of a sudden descent of the authorities. For form's sake, scarcely for more, a man kept watch over the valley road and signaled, by the flashing of a lamp twice, every party with which he was acquainted, and there were no others than these to signal. A second man waited by the gate into the court to admit them. They rode and walked in from all round. Great gentlemen, such as the North Lees family, came with a small retinue. A few came alone. Yeomen and farm servants with their womenfolk from the Heathersedge Valley came for the most part on foot. Altogether, perhaps a hundred and twenty persons were within Padley Manor, and the gate secured by six o'clock. Meanwhile, within, the priest had been busy since half-past four with the hearing of confessions. He sat in the chapel beside the undecked altar, and they came to him one by one. The household and a few of the nearer neighbors had done their duty in this matter the day before, and a good number had already made their Easter duties earlier in Lent. So by six o'clock all was finished. Then began the bustle. A group of ladies, Fitzherberts and Fentons, entered, so soon as the priest gave the signal by tapping on the parlor wall, bearing all things necessary for the altar. And it was astonishing what fine things these were, so that by the time that the priest was ready to vest, the place was transformed. Stuffs and embroideries hung upon the wall about the altar, making it seem, indeed, a sanctuary. Two tall silver candlesticks, used for no other purpose, stood upon the linen cloths, under which rested the slate altar-stone, taken with the sacred vessels and the vestments from one of the privy hiding-holes, with whose secret not a living being without the house, and not more than two or three within, was acquainted. It was rumored that half a dozen such places had been contrived within the precincts, two of which were great enough to hold two or three men at a pinch. Soon after six o'clock, then, the altar was ready, and the priest stood vested. He retired a pace from the altar, signed himself with the cross, and with Mr. John Fitzherbert and his son Thomas on either side of him, began the preparation. It was a strange and inspiring sight that the young priest, for it was Mr. Simpson who was saying the Mass, looked upon as he turned round after the gospel to make his little sermon. From end to end the tiny chapel was full, packed so that few could kneel and none sit down. The two doors were open, and here two faces peered in. And behind, rank after rank down the steps and along the little passage, the folk stood or knelt, out of sight of both priest and altar, and almost out of sound. The sanctuary was full of children, whose round-eyed, solemn faces looked up at him, children who knew little or nothing of what was passing, except that they were there to worship God, but who, for all that, received impressions and associations that could never thereafter wholly leave them. The chapel was still completely dark, for the faint light of dawn was excluded by the heavy hangings over the windows, and there was but the light of the two tapers to show the people to one another and the priest to them all. It was an inspiriting sight to him then, and one which well rewarded him for his labors, since there was not a class from gentlemen to laborers who was not represented there. The Fitzherberts, the Babingtons, the Fentons, these with their servants and guests, accounted for perhaps half of the folk. From the shadow by the door peeped out the faces of John Merton and his wife and son. Beneath the window was the solemn face of Mr. Manners, the lawyer, with his daughter beside him, Robin Audrey beside her, and Dick, his servant, behind him. Surely, thought the young priest, the faith could not be in its final decay with such a gathering as this. His little sermon was plain enough for the most foolish there. He spoke of Christ's resurrection, of how death had no power to hold him, nor pains, nor prison to detain him, and he spoke too of that mystical life of his which he yet lived in his body, which was the church, of how death too stretched forth his hands against him there, and yet had no more force to hold him than in his natural life lived on earth near sixteen hundred years ago, how a resurrection awaited him here in England as in Jerusalem, if his friends would be constant and courageous, not faithless, but believing. Even here, he said, 
In this upper chamber, where we are gathered for fear of the Jews, comes Jesus and stands in the midst, the doors being shut. Upon this altar he will be presently, the Lamb slain, yet the Lamb victorious, to give us all that peace which the world can neither give nor take away. And he added a few words of exhortation and encouragement, bidding them fear nothing whatever might come upon them in the future, to hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints, and so to attain the heavenly crown. He was not eloquent, for he was but a young man newly come from college with no great gifts, yet not a soul there looked upon him, on his innocent wondering eyes and his quivering lips, but was moved by what he saw and heard. The priest signed himself with the cross, and turned again to continue the Mass. "'You tell me, then,' said the girl quietly, "'that all is as it was with you? God has told you nothing?' Robin was silent. Mass had been done an hour or more, and for the most part the company was dispersed again, after refreshment spread in the hall, except for those who were to stay to dinner, and these two had slipped away at last to talk together in the woods. For the court was still filled with servants coming and going, and the parlors occupied. In one the ladies were still busy with the altar furniture, in the other the priest sat to talk in private with those who were come from a distance. And as for the hall, this too was in the hands of the servants, since not less than thirty gentlefolk were to dine there that day. Robin had come to Booth's Edge at the beginning of Passion Week, and had been there ever since. He had refrained, at Marjorie's entreaty, from speaking of her to her parents. And they too, ruled by their daughter, had held their tongues on the matter. Everything else, however, had been discussed. The effect of the squire's apostasy, the alternatives that presented themselves to the boy, the future behavior of him to his father. All these things had been spoken of, and even the priest called into council during the last two or three days. Yet not much had come of it. If the worst came to the worst, the lawyer had offered the boy a place in his office. Anthony Babington had proposed his coming to Dethick if his father turned him out, while Robin himself inclined to a third alternative, the begging of his father to give him a sum of money and be rid of him, after which he proposed, with youthful vagueness, to set off for London and see what he could do there. Marjorie, however, had seemed strangely uninterested in such proposals. She had listened with patience, bowing her head in assent to each, beginning once or twice a word of criticism, and stopping herself before she had well begun. But she had looked at Robin with more than interest, and her mother had found her more than once on her knees in her own chamber, in tears. Yet she had said nothing, except that she would speak her mind after Easter, perhaps. And now, it seemed, she was doing it. "'You have had no other thought?' she said again. "'Besides those of which you talked with my father?' They were talking together through the woods, half a mile along the Heathersage Valley. Beneath them the ground fell steeply away, above them it rose as steeply to the right. Underfoot the new life of spring was burgeoning in mold and grass and undergrowth, for the heather did not come down so far as this, and the daffodils and celandine and wild hyacinth lay in carpets of yellow and blue, infinitely sweet, beneath the shadow of the trees and in the open sunshine. It was at this time that the squire of Matstead was entering the church and hearing of the promises of the Lord to the sinner who forsook his sinful ways. "'I have had other thoughts,' said the boy slowly, but they are so wild and foolish that I have determined to think no more of them. You are determined? He bowed his head. You are sure, then, that they are not from God? asked the girl, torn between fear and hope. He was silent, and her heart sank again. He looked, indeed, a bewildered boy, borne down by a weight that was too heavy for his years. He walked with his hands behind his back, his hatless head bowed, regarding his feet and the last year's leaves on which he walked. A cuckoo across the valley called with the insistence of one who will be answered. My Robin, said the girl, the last thing I would have you do is to tell me what you would not. Will you not speak to the priest about it? I have spoken to the priest. Yes? He tells me he does not know what to think. Would you do this thing, whatever it may be, if the priest told you it was God's will? There was a pause, and then, I do not know, said Robin, so low she could scarcely hear him. She drew a deep breath to reassure herself. Listen, she said, I must say a little of what I think, but not all. Our Lord must finish it to you, if it is according to his will. He glanced at her swiftly, and down again, like a frightened child. 
Yet even in that glance he could see that it was all that she could do to force herself to speak, and by that look he understood for the first time something of that which she was suffering. You know first, she said, that I am promised to you. I hold that promise as sacred as anything on earth can be. Her voice shook a little. The boy bowed his head again. She went on. But there are some things, she said, more sacred than anything on earth, those things that come from heaven. Now I wish to say this, and then have done with it, that if such should be God's will, I would not hold you for a day. We are Catholics, you and I. Your father... Her voice broke, and she stopped, yet without leaving go of her hold upon herself. Only she could not speak for a moment. Then a great fury seized on the boy. It was one of those angers that for a while poison the air and turn all things sour, yet without obscuring the mind. An anger in which the angry one strikes first at that which he loves most, because he loves it most, knowing too that the words he speaks are false. For this, for the present, was the breaking point in the lad. He had suffered torments in his soul ever since the hour in which he had ridden into the gate of his own home after his talk in the empty chapel. He had striven to put away from him that idea for which the girl's words had broken an entrance into his heart, and now she would give him no peace. She continued to press on him from without that which already pained him within. So he turned on her. "'You wish to be rid of me!' he cried fiercely. She looked at him with her lips parted, her eyes astonished, and her face gone white. "'What did you say?' she said. His conscience pierced him like a sword, yet he set his teeth. "'You wish to be rid of me. You are urging me to leave you. You talk to me of God's will and God's voice, and you have no pity on me at all. It is an excuse, a blind.' He stood raging. The very fact that he knew every word to be false made his energy the greater, for he could not have said it otherwise. "'You think that?' she whispered. There then they stood, eyeing one another. A stranger, coming suddenly upon them, would have said it was a lover's tiff and have laughed at it. Yet it was a deeper matter than that. Then there surged over the boy a wave of shame, and the truth prevailed. His fair face went scarlet, and his eyes filled with tears. He dropped on his knees in the leaves, seized her hand, and kissed it. "'Oh, you must forgive me,' he said. "'But, but I cannot do it.'" It was a great occasion in the hall that Easter day. The three tables, which according to custom ran along the walls, were filled today with guests, and a second dinner was to follow, scarcely less splendid than the first, for their servants as well as for those of the household. The floor was spread with new rushes. Jugs of March beer, a full month old as it should be, were ranged down the tables, and by every plate lay a posy of flowers. From the passage outside came the sound of music. The feast began with the reading of the gospel. At the close, Mr. John struck with his hand upon the table as a signal for conversation. The doors opened, the servants came in, and a babble of talk broke out. At the high table, the master of the house presided, with the priest on his right, Mrs. Manners and Marjorie beyond him, on his left, Mrs. Fenton and her lord. At the other two tables, Mr. Thomas presided at one and Mr. Babington at the other. The talk was, of course, within the bounds of discretion, though once and again sentences were spoken which would scarcely have pleased the minister of the parish, for they were difficult times in which they lived, and it is no wonder at all if bitterness mixed itself with charity. Here was Mr. John, for instance, come to Padley expressly for the selling of some meadows to meet his fines. Here was his son Thomas, the heir now, not only to Padley, but to Norbury, whose lord, his uncle, lay in the fleet prison. Here was Mr. Fenton, who had suffered the like in the matter of fines more than once. Hardly one of the folk there but had paid a heavy price for his conscience, and all the worship that was permitted to them, and that by circumstance, and not by law, was such as they had engaged in that morning with shuttered windows and a sentinel for fear that too should be silenced. They talked then guardedly of those things, since the servants were in and out continually, and though all professed the same faith as their masters, yet these were times that tried loyalty hard. Mr. John indeed gave news of his brother Sir Thomas, and said how he did, and read a letter too from Italy from his younger brother Nicholas, who was fled abroad after a year's prison at Oxford. But the climax of the talk came when dinner was over, and the muscadel with the mold jellies had been put upon the tables. 
It was at this moment that Mr. John nodded to his son, who went to the door to see the servants out, and stood by it to see that none listened. Then his father struck his hands together for silence, and himself spoke. Mr. Simpson, he said, has something to say to us all. It is not a matter to be spoken of lightly, as you will understand presently. Mr. Simpson? The priest looked up timidly, pulling out a paper from his pocket. You have heard of Mr. Nelson? he said to the company. Well, he was a priest, and I have news of his death. He was executed in London on the 3rd of February for his religion, and another man, a Mr. Sherwood, was executed a few days afterwards. There was a rustle along the benches. Some there had heard of the fact, but no more. Some had heard nothing of either the man or his death. Two or three faces turned a shade paler, and then the silence settled down again. For here was a matter that touched them all closely enough, since up to now scarcely a priest except Mr. Cuthbert Maine had suffered death for his religion, and even of him some of the more tolerant said that it was treason with which he was charged. They had heard, indeed, of a priest or two having been sent abroad into exile for his faith, but the most of them thought it a thing incredible that in England at this time a man should suffer death for it. Fines and imprisonment were one thing, to such they had become almost accustomed, but death was another matter altogether. And for a priest? Was it possible that the days of King Harry were coming back, and that every Catholic henceforth should go in peril of his life, as well as of liberty? The folk settled themselves then in their seats. One or two men drank off a glass of wine. "'I have heard from a good friend of mine in London,' went on the priest, looking at his paper, "'one who followed every step of the trial, and was present at the death. They suffered at Tyburn. However, I will tell you what he says.' He is a countryman of mine, from Yorkshire, as was Mr. Nelson, too. Mr. Nelson was taken in London on the 1st of December last year. He was born at Shelton, and was about forty-three years old. He was the son of Sir Nicholas Nelson. So much, said the priest, looking up from his paper, I knew myself. I saw him about four years ago, just before he went to Dewey, and he came back to England as a priest a year and a half later. Mr. Sherwood was not a priest. He had been at Dewey, too, but as a scholar only. Well, we will speak of Mr. Nelson first. This is what my friend says. He spread the paper before him on the table, and Marjorie, looking past her mother, saw that his hands shook as he spread it. "'Mr. Nelson,' began the priest, reading aloud with some difficulty, "'was brought before my lords, and first had tendered to him the oath of the Queen's supremacy. This he refused to take, saying that no lay prince could have preeminence over Christ's church, and upon being pressed as to who then could have it, answered, "'Christ's vicar only, the successor of Peter.' Further, he proceeded to say, under questioning, that since the religion of England at this time is schismatic and heretical, so also is the Queen's grace who is head of it. This, then, was what was wanted, and after a delay of a few weeks, the same questions being put to him, and his answers being the same, he was sentenced to death. He was very fortunate in his imprisonment. I had speech with him two or three times, and was the means, by God's blessing, of bringing another priest to him, to whom he confessed himself, and with whom he received the body of Christ a day before he suffered. On the 3rd of February, knowing nothing of his death being so near, he was brought up to a higher part of the prison, and there told he was to suffer that day. His kinsmen were admitted to him then to bid him farewell, and afterwards two ministers came to turn him from his faith if they could, but they prevailed nothing. There was a pause in the reading, but there was no movement among any that listened. Robin, watching from his place at the right-hand table, cold at heart, ran his eyes along the faces. The priest was as white as death, with the excitement, it seemed, of having to tell such a tale. His host beside him seemed downcast and quiet, but perfectly composed. Mrs. Manners had her eyes closed. Anthony Babington was frowning to himself with tight lips. Marjorie he could not see. With a great effort, the reader resumed. When he was laid on the hurdle, he refused to ask pardon of the Queen's grace, for, said he, I never have yet offended her. I was beside him and heard it. And he added, when those who stood near stormed at him, that it was better to be hanged than to burn in hellfire. There was a great concourse of people at Tyburn, but kept back by the officers so that they could not come at him. When he was in the cart, first he commended his spirit into God's hands, saying, In manus tuas, etc. 
Then he besought all Catholics that were present to pray for him. I saw a good many who signed themselves in the crowd. And then he said some prayers in Latin, with the Psalms Miserere and De Profundis. And then he addressed himself to the people, telling them he died for his religion, which was the Catholic Roman one, and prayed and desired them to pray that God would bring all Englishmen into it. The crowd cried out at that, exclaiming against this Catholic Romish faith. And so he said what he had to say over again. Then, before the cart was drawn away from him to leave him to hang, he asked pardon of all them he had offended, and even the queen, if he had indeed offended her. Then one of the sheriffs called on the hangman to make an end. So Mr. Nelson prayed again in silence, and then begged all Catholics that were there once more to pray that, by the bitter passion of Christ, his soul might be received into everlasting joy. And they did so, for as the cart was drawn away, a great number cried out, and I with them, Lord, receive his soul. He was cut down, according to sentence, before he was dead, and the butchery begun on him. And when it was near over, he moved a little in his pain, and said that he forgave the queen and all that caused or consented to his death. And so he died. The priest's voice, which had shaken again and again, grew so tremulous as he ended that those that were at the end of the hall could scarcely hear him, and as it ceased, a murmur ran along the seats. Mr. Fitzherbert leaned over to the priest and whispered. The priest nodded, and the other held up his hand for silence. There is more yet, he said. Mr. Simpson, with a hand that still shook so violently that he could hardly hold his glass, lifted and drank off a cup of muscadel. Then he cleared his throat, sat up a little in his chair, and resumed. Next I went to see Mr. Sherwood, to talk to him in prison and to encourage him by telling him of the passion of the other and how bravely he bore it. Mr. Sherwood took it very well, and said that he was afraid of nothing, that he had reconciled his mind to it long ago, and had rehearsed it all two or three times so that he would know what to say and how to bear himself. Mr. Fitzherbert leaned over again to the priest at this point and whispered something. Mr. Simpson nodded and raised his eyes. Mr. Sherwood, he said, was a scholar from Douay, but not a priest. He was lodging in the house of a Catholic lady and had procured mass to be said there, and it was through her son that he was taken and charged with recusancy. Again ran a rustle through the benches. This executing of the laity for religion was a new thing in their experience. The priest lifted the paper again. I found that Mr. Sherwood had been racked many times in the tower during the six months he was in prison, to force him to tell, if they could, where he had heard Mass and who said it, but they could prevail nothing. Further, no visitor was admitted to him all this time, and I was the first and the last that he had, and that though Mr. Roper himself had tried to get at him for his relief, for he was confined underground and lay in chains and filth not to be described. I said what I could to him, but he said he needed nothing and was content, though his pain must have been very great all this while, what with the racking repeated over and over again in the place he lay in. I was present again when he suffered at Tyburn, but was too far away to hear anything that he said, and scarcely, indeed, could see him. But I learned afterwards that he died well and courageously, as a Catholic should, and made no outcry or complaint when the butchery was done on him. This, then, is the news I have to send you, sorrowful indeed, yet joyful too, for surely we may think that they who bore such pains for Christ's sake with such constancy will intercede for us whom they leave behind. I am hoping myself to come north again before I go to Douay next year, and will see you then and tell you more. The priest laid down the paper, trembling. Mr. Fitzherbert looked up. "'It will give pleasure to the company,' he said, "'to know that the writer of the letter is Mr. Ludlam from Radburn in this county. "'As you have heard, he too hopes by God's mercy to be made priest "'and to come back to England.' 